Welcome back to another episode of High School Not Too Much Musical. This is the last part of our talk with Tom Galvin. Stay tuned to see what a typical day in the life of a journalist is and how the whole press system works. We hope you enjoy. This is High School Not So Much a Musical, a podcast that takes you on a ride to the peaks and valleys of a high school journey. Here are your presenters, Nitin Jaladanki and Ayush Agarwal. So what I found interesting about what you said is there's so much travel involved in journalism and specifically like on the ground journalism, which I think you were very centered on, that a lot of people don't realize it's not just taking the facts from that, like whatever one of your colleagues give you and writing an article about it. It's about like going on the ground specifically, like analyzing the facts with your own eyes and then coming to conclusions about that evidence that you saw and using that to uh, like formulate a strong argumentative article. So if you could talk a little bit about what, what does the day in the life of a journalist look like? Because obviously what you talked about, uh, like going on the ground every single day during like a presidential campaign for what, like uh, going in different states, analyzing different people's perspectives on the candidates, and then also like the Guantanamo Bay trip. Those, I'm guessing, were kind of like once every few years types of things, right? It's not something that you do on a daily basis. But could you talk a little bit about on a daily basis, you know, what you did, how your day was kind of structured as a journalist. I think that would, uh, that would be pretty interesting. Yeah, sure. I, I can speak of mine, but before I do that, there's all different types of journalists. Some will never travel uh, and some will spend all their time traveling. And to your point, it'll be a hybrid where it'll be in between. I did a fair amount of traveling, but certainly spent a lot of my time, particularly when I was a DC based reporter, say covering Capitol Hill, uh, where I spent my time actually at the Capitol every day. So. A, a typical day back then was having an idea in, in your head beforehand because you knew what was going on about what you might want to be writing about, having some ideas in advance about what that would look like and who you needed to talk to, and going about your job. I actually worked out of the House Press Gallery for many years. And if you look at the January 6th riot, uh, it was very um, emotional for me because some of those rooms were where there was actually specific violence, including the young lady who was shot, was going into the an area that I spent countless hours in. So on any given day, you kind of went in with a plan, but you always had to be able to adapt because stories might break, things might change. You might have to, you might have gotten 95% of a story done and then suddenly something happens and it's either wiped away or you have to just put it aside for something else. That's what I loved about the journalism I did. I enjoyed the fact that no day was like any other, was like any other and you were at the whim of the news that, that was happening. So I really enjoyed that part of it. So that was a typical day. You'd start, say, nine o'clock in the morning. Journalists don't get credit for starting early. They get credit for working late because of deadlines. You know, there's not really, at least for me at the time, there wasn't a nine o'clock deadline, but there was a six or seven or eight o'clock deadline. So you'd spend your day trying to flesh out the story you wanted to write. if it or adapting to whatever changed, you end up probably around 4 p.m. starting to try to put it together into a story form, send it to editors, deal with them for a couple hours in terms of uh, making sure that it was accurate and that they had changes. They almost always did. That's the nature of editing and reporting. And maybe sometime around uh, 
seven or eight, you'd get an all clear and you'd be done with your day, except in those instances when you get a call at midnight, like I occasionally did to say, hey, someone just uh, jumped the White House fence and was shot. You need to get to the White House fast and figure out what's going on there. And then you jump in your car and you, uh, and you end up at the White House at midnight trying to figure out what the heck happened. Wow, that's like a pretty crazy day. And um, earlier in, you said, like in your favorite, like in most interesting events, you mentioned Guatemala Bay. And uh, right now I'm learning about that in EPUS history, which like I said, I was taking earlier. Um, so could you talk about your experience at Guatemala Bay? Yes, I, I, I don't want to overstate it because we flew from Andrews Air Force Base to Guantanamo and um, weren't there for a very long time. But Guantanamo is just a fascinating place. Like I said, it's a vestige of an old treaty. It's an important military base for the United States. Uh, we were there uh, kind of in, on hold waiting to get into helicopters, which was a lot of fun. I, I don't, I love helicopters. And so I saw a little bit of the base, but obviously they weren't gonna let us have the run of the show. Uh, one, it could be dangerous. Um, so we were there and then we, like I said, boarded those helicopters and flew 45 minutes over an ocean uh, to get to the, the USS Wasp, which was the ship that we were landing on uh, in, in anticipation of being there for part of the invasion. So um, Guantanamo is a fascinating place. It, later on, it's obviously become more featured because it's where detainees were kept after 9-11. It's a rather large base. Uh, I think it's something like 45 acres or more. Uh, I think I might be butchering that, but it's a significantly large base. Um, it is much more than that, excuse me. Um, it is a significantly large base. It holds thousands of U.S. troops and thousands of contractors, and it is a kind of a vestige of the Cold War. So one of my questions was, um, when you normally, like one of these TV shows that I was watching, it's called um, Designated Survivor. And in that basically, they the capital gets blown up by terrorists, and all, like the whole all of Congress basically dies. And there's like this person called a designated survivor who is from, like the director of urban housing and development or something like that. And then he's always bombarded by um, these White House press briefings where he's uh like bombarded by reporters asking him a lot of questions. So it's just a really short question. Were you ever? Were you ever given the opportunity to like talk to the president or to the president's press secretary or anything like that, where you're in the White House? And like after they were speaking, there's a ton of people saying, Mr. President, Mr. President, anything like that? Yes, I actually saw that show at the beginning. I thought it was an interesting premise. For the State of the Union, which the president traditionally gives every year in person, usually in January or early February, it's a collection of all members of Congress, the Supreme Court, several members of the president's cabinet. And for security reasons, they always have hold back at least one member of the cabinet. And the reason for that is, if you look at the order of succession, if the president dies, it goes vice president, uh, speaker of the house, I think president pro tem of the Senate, and then in order of establishment of cabinet positions, I think it's state department treasury and that. And so there's always one person to make sure that there's a continuity of government in case something bad happens. So I attended at least 10 state of the unions uh, and would always try to find, we'd always find out who was the uh, person who was held back. 
Uh, they didn't say it initially for obviously security reasons, but over, you know, you'd find out later that night once the speech was over. And it was always a wild day because the State of the Union is a really big moment. And afterwards, uh, there's a place called Statuary Hall, which is in the middle of the Capitol, separating the House and the Senate. And members of Congress and cabinet members and would come through there and you'd interview them to do reaction after the State of the Union was over. That was always a really long night. So you, I talked about in, you know, 9, 9, 9 a.m. to 8 p.m. day. That was like 9 a.m. to 2 a.m. day because by the time you got out of there, it was probably midnight and everything else. So it was a, a long day. Um, to answer your question, yeah, I, I've interviewed presidents either while they were in office or after they left office, going back to President George Bush, the first one. Um, I actually interviewed President Trump when I was a member uh, of the congressional reporting staff, and he was just a businessman. He was on the Hill trying to stop um, uh, casinos uh, from Native Americans. And uh, so, yeah, I've interviewed presidents. You, it's not necessarily easy to do, and sometimes it takes a little bit of work. But yes, uh, you don't normally get much answers in those situations because they're on guard. Uh, you tip, typically get better answers in a one-on-one -on -one situation, but uh, I've been part of that chase. That chase seems so chaotic because it's kind of like, you know, whenever you see uh, all these TV shows like Nathan was talking about, as soon as a celebrity or a prisoner, any, anyone walks out of the building, there's like dozens, if not like tens of reporters crowding around them trying to Try, try, trying to get in on the action, trying to get in there just one question that they can use as a hook in whatever their news story is. And uh, I think there was actually something we learned in school called yellow journalism, which is essentially how uh, journalism has become more sensationalized over time, uh, where oftentimes news reporters uh, and journalists can over exaggerate certain events that might uh, that are small at the surface sur surface but they over exaggerate them just in an attempt to uh essentially get more views right uh in fact we have also been guilty of this on our podcast sometimes we have uh some titles that are a little bit you know clickbaity where we kind of talk about that topic in the podcast but not exactly it's kind of somewhat related and uh, that's obviously very common in journalism as well um, if you could speak a little bit about, you know, the sensitization of journalism over time, how it's become uh, a, more based on getting views than uh, actually giving like the hard facts and news, I think uh, that would be pretty, pretty interesting. Sure. Uh, I'm going to answer your question and you're not going to believe what happened next. So how's that for clickbaity? Um, so there was two questions in there. One about journalists, you know, chasing after celebrities or politicians. Uh, it happens for sure, but it's kind of dramatic. It's dramatized when it comes to a president or a vice president. There's a security perimeter around them, typically, that makes it difficult to get close to them if they don't want to be close to you. Uh, there was an exception to it. Uh, president Bush, the first one was on Capitol Hill and uh, for an announcement of something. And myself and another journalist, uh, we ended up kind of circling President Bush as he was leaving and at a certain point he kind of was like back up but he did answer our questions i was surprised the secret service allowed us to do that there was no way that would happen today uh, a different era 
So, but certainly when it comes to members of Congress and celebrities, I've been part of lots and lots of people being pushed. And you, if it's cameramen and, you know, and print reporters, I've had plenty of cameras that have been stuck into my back to try to encourage me to move so they could get their shot. Uh, there's always a bit of a back and forth between broadcast and print journalists when it comes to trying to reach the subject they're trying to reach. So just to answer that part of it, in terms of yellow journalism and this idea of what I would call more commentary journalism, we are definitely in an era of commentary journalism, but we've been here before. Yellow journalism was a phrase that was adopted, I believe, at the end of the 19th century um, that talked about sensationalism and and kind of dramatizing and opinion journalism. But that goes all the way back. If you look at the founding of this country, each presidential, pardon me, each political party or interest had their own viewpoints and they built their own platforms, newspapers or pamphlets to be able to do that. That's what the Federalist Papers were. So we have gone through eras of times where there's a little bit, there's a lot more commentary in journalism. And then if you look at the 20th century, it was a kind of a golden era of, I would call independent, independently funded and more contextual journalism with a lot of investigative journalism, which is so important to this country to keep a check on our policymakers. We are now in a time of definitely commentary journalism. A lot of that has been brought on by technology, but this kind of tends to ebb and flow. I'm personally a believer. I hope we get more back to more context and a little bit less commentary because don't really care about that. But it's definitely been happening, but I would say it's not the first time. And it gives me comfort in that, that hopefully we can get back to a little bit more balance. So in TV shows, for example, like, I don't know if this would happen in the real world, but I noticed that the press secretary in like a press conference that will literally like say the name of the journalist and like the press and like, how do they know their names? Like, is there like like a name tag or like, I don't even know if this happens in the real world, but like, like what's the process of asking a question? Like, how do they know who to call on? Is everyone like eagerly waiting to like raise their hand and be like, Mr. President, Mr. President. So like, what's the process of like trying to ask a question in um, a press conference? Sure. It all depends upon who the press conference is. If it's on Capitol Hill and it's senators or house members, it's just kind of random, but there's a, there's a certain number of journalists who are up on Capitol Hill on a day-to-day -day basis. And senators and house members, you get to know each other. So you get to, you sit down and you talk to them, not just about issues, but you talk to them about their lives in some instances. Um, so you get to know each other. So if you see someone called by name, it's because there's not a thousand people and who are doing that job at any moment. It's probably a group of 40 or 50 or 60. And over time, you get to know them or at least you get to know their they get to know the journalist names. When it comes to a presidential press conference, that's a little bit more scripted and they tend to have a pecking order on who they're going to call. You typically the first question goes to what is called the dean of the press corps, which is the person who's been uh, doing it the longest. Um, but there's always going to be a preference for those who work at NBC or ABC or CNN. Um, when it comes to the president and those press conferences, Associated Press, when it comes to a press secretary at the at the White House before the podium, pretty much anyone's going to be able to answer that question because they're going to raise their hand or they're going to ask the question and assert themselves. So it's pretty common that you'll have a range of questions from lots of different entities. And that press secretary gets to know them because they're all working in the same space. 
there's not that many people who are at the White House every day working as journalists. And you certainly get to know the press secretaries. I, you know, I'm still very friendly with several of the ones who've worked at the White House to this day. So we're almost at the ending point of our podcast. And I just really wanted to ask you the final tips question that we ask every person. And during our introductory meeting, you talked about how there's a special topic that you want to talk about. So if you have any general advice for our listeners or any tips for them, can you please go ahead and list them all out? Sure. Well, first, thank you for this. I really enjoyed it. And I've been doing a lot of podcasts and interviews. And I will confess that this is the one I was perhaps most looking forward to because you're at an age group where in coming years, you will be the people I'm writing about in the auction, about people who are going to, who are trying to feel enormous pressure to determine their own destiny. And now they have this added pressure of essentially only having it be their financial value and being bid on like a stock by large corporations who then have a vested interest in your future. So the pressure I try to talk about in the auction is based on you in the next five or six years for you and your classmates. Uh, I wrote the auction as my first novel, but I had been a writer for a really long time, whether that was in the in Silicon Valley and working for corporations and then my time as a journalist. And the one thing I'd say is I never necessarily had anyone say, hey, you should be a writer. This is something that I had to figure out myself. And in, like I said, I kind of stepped into it uh, as an opportunity when I needed a job when I was getting my master's degree. But that would be my tip or my my hope for all of you, the three of you and all your classmates, which is you don't need someone to tell you to do that you can do something for you to go do it. If you want to be a journalist, go be a journalist. You want to be a doctor or a lawyer or a business person or a teacher or a firefighter or whatever job that is, uh, it's up to you. Hopefully you get encouraged because people see things in you that make you want to do it. But if not, and it's still what you want to do, go do it. It's your life. And in the end of the day, it really doesn't matter if someone encourages you or not. What all that matters is that you find what you're gonna, what you're gonna love and what is gonna kind of uh, fulfill you. And so that'd be my tip or my advice to anyone of you and your class, of your classmates, which is don't wait for someone to tell you you can do it. If you think you can do it, I bet you can. Okay, so thank you so much, Mr. Galvin, for your time. And this was a really, really interesting podcast for Ayushwishi and I. And also thank you for our listeners for listening to this podcast and keep on the lookout for future podcasts. We've been going for, I would say, five months strong now. So thank you so much for all the support that you've given us. And thank you, Mr. Galvin, once again for your time. And we'll see you next time. Thank you. That's our show for today. Now roll the credits. High School Not So Much a Musical is hosted by Ayush Agarwal, Nitin Jaladanki, and Rishi Sinha. Narration by Samhit Padala. Music from Louis Luang Relaxation Cafe, Tune Pocket, and Infraction. If you like the show, please recommend it to your friends and family. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time.